The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I'm 73 years old. (laughs) If he won't tell you, he doesn't know much about it anyway. I know more about it than he. I'm in a better position to know. I was born in wooden shoes in Holland. I wore wooden shoes till I was 10. Then I came to this country and was brought up on a farm in Indiana. And I have that farmer background still, and it may still appear even this morning in the way I talk. If you are very civilized and very cultured and refined, please do not take offense. (laughs) Well, we want to talk in... Oh, let me ask you if there are any particular questions that some of you would like. I don't mean to say I'm the Encyclopedia Britannica, but pertaining to Christian apologetics, Christianity and its relation to science and modern philosophy and so forth. Uh, Are there questions that some of you would like to bring out right away, and then I'll try as best I can to weave my talk around those questions. Well, uh, I was wondering, is there any definite uh, Christian philosophy of mathematics? Oh, I see. All right, what else? Dr. Mantelli, many of your writings should make the distinction between the biblical and the equivalent knowledge. We should discuss that. Right. All right, what else? Problem of probability. what is a Christian philosophy of life in a, what's a totality outlook as Christians should have it and how do they present this totality outlook to those who are not Christians with the purpose of winning them to become Christians now that's what we're all interested in if we're Christians if you're not Christians you will still want to know how we look at the matter in order to try to present the thing to you now Therefore, where do we find out what Christianity is? Well, obviously, I think we find out from Christ, who is the Savior of men, whom we believe to be such, and he has spoken for us, to us, in the Scriptures, once for all, which he, by the Holy Spirit, inspiring the apostles, tells us, and which the Church of Jesus Christ has tried to reinterpret, and the councils, the early councils of the church, for instance, in Chalcedon, talked about the incarnation, the relation of the divine to the human nature, and then at the Reformation, the 
this gospel of grace was much more clearly and consistently set forth. And then in the Reformed confessions, it was still more consistently put forth, as at least I believe. Now, I would say let's then try to survey first, very briefly, what Christianity is. Then what is the natural man, as the Bible calls him, the man who doesn't believe this, and for what reason he doesn't believe this, and why he opposes this, and why it's so difficult to persuade him, and how do you make a point of contact with him if he believes so differently from what you believe? Well, in the first place, we get our instruction then from the Bible. What does the Bible say? Well, in the first place, it talks about God, and it says God is triune. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Namely, there is not one abstract, unifying, impersonal principle that ties things together, but this God who is self-contained, sufficient to himself. He doesn't stand over against something other than himself to which he is correlative, but he is self-sufficient, as we call it, and you can call it absolute or self-contained, whatever you will. Now that is giving the theological or the philosophical expression to what is taught in Bible in simple language. Now we start with the Bible and its revelation through the course of history to his people to redeem them from sin. Now what does the Bible say secondly? Well, it tells Oh, I made that circle too big. <laughs> that the world is created... Now, there's all kinds of problems, of course, in connection with creation and evolution, biological and cosmical evolution and so forth. Well, they come up, we'll say, at this point. The Bible says plainly that all the facts of the universe, in whatever field that you may be interested in, are created facts, are they not? Well, that's a basically important point, and that they are controlled by the providence of God. Therefore, the laws of nature are God's regular way of doing things in this world. The facts are related by God's plan and activity, his outgoing activity. The works of his decree, his purpose, are expressed in creation and in providence, which includes whatsoever comes to pass that involves. For what purpose? Then he made man in the creation, and man is an image bearer of God, he is the image of God, made like unto God, so that God converses with him, speaks with him. Now that is basically important for this point of contact business, because that means that God in paradise was speaking with man. Man was able to appreciate, to understand, to react in obedience or disobedience to that which God said to him, do this and thou shalt live and do that and thou shalt die. It was a covenantal command, an arrangement which God says, I'm making with you. You are my creatures. I'm putting you in paradise. I've given you all that you could possibly conceive of as wanting on condition that you obey me, that is, love me, and express this love as a child should express its love in obedience, gladly doing what God says with a whole heart, as a prophet, as a priest and a king, as a prophet, with his mind, with his intellect, interpreting this world, becoming a scientist pretty soon, as a priest with his heart, 
dedicating this himself to God and all his efforts, and as a king under God, ruling over this world to the glory of God. Now, that is, to begin with, the Christian position so far as origins are concerned. Well, then comes, of course, the question of sin and the question of the fall, therefore. Now, Romans tells us, 5.12, that in Adam all have died, that he represented all mankind, just like the President of the United States represents us. I don't mean to say we start from the President and then work up to Adam, but we start from the revelation of God, what it says, and we illustrate that those facts by some certain things that take place among ourselves ordinarily, namely... Sin is therefore the breaking of man, the covenant that man had made with God. He is now a covenant breaker. He's therefore under the wrath of God. And that means that God uh, banishes him from his presence, from paradise, and he's, a, he's after that an ex-convict, and he's loose, all right, but he is nevertheless under the wrath of God, and he can't escape anywhere where the wrath of God does not meet him. Though I bed myself in hell, lo, thou art there. Now, man doesn't like this business, that he, God's wrath. Now, Romans tells us, first of all, that on the basis of man's being made in the image of God, he knows God, non distantheon, that is, knowing God, he couldn't help but know God, and that's why you have always a contact with every human being without any possibility of escape because he knows God. That is, he knows that he is a creature of God and he knows at the same time that he has done that which is wrong in the sight of God. Now, there is the question of point of contact to begin with. In that fact, no matter what he says, he says, I'm... I just heard this morning at 6.30 a wonderful lecture on Sat, the French atheist or the French uh, existentialist. Well, he's, of course, said to be an atheist, and he says he's free from God, he's independent of God, and God can't exist. Not only does he think God probably doesn't exist, but he knows for certain there isn't any possibility of his existence, even though he says he's a bit of ooze, oozing out of ooze, and returning to ooze. Now, he makes a universal negative. Well, now, that is the climax of the attitude of sinful man, which attitude came into the world when Adam and Eve listened to the devil instead of to God. Now, what happened then at that time was like this. God was this big. Oh, that's too small. Man was this big, and Satan was that big. And... Uh, now, set Satan to Eve, he caught her alone. He sh Eve should never have strayed from her loving husband, as wives should never do. Then they always get in trouble. Well, she got in trouble. Why? Well, Eve said, Satan said to Eve, now you'll be scientific, won't you? You'll be a personality, won't you, on your own. Uh, you must do what Socrates is going to do, namely say, I will do and I want to know what the good is or the holy is, regardless of what God or man says about it. I want to know of myself by principles that are inherent in myself, 
which I recognize as inescapable, what is right and what is wrong. Well, then on that basis, Satan had a hypothesis and God had a hypothesis. In other words, it meant that God was the creator, is reduced to the level of man the creature, or man the creature and Satan the creature, are lifted up to the level. At least there is a complete leveling of the creator-creature distinction. And Paul the Apostle knows only two kinds of people in the world, namely creature worshipers and creator worshipers. Now, we make a lot of distinctions. We say there are Dutchmen and non-Dutchmen. Or we say there are these and others and Presbyterians and Baptists and Orthodox Presbyterians. And we go all the way through. The Bible knows two and only two distinctions, basically, which doesn't mean the others have no significance. The point being that man has denied his creaturehood, which means he has asserted his autonomy. If he is not a creature, he doesn't live by the law or ordinance of God, intellectually, morally, and in the field, in the field of being. He isn't a creature, metaphysically, if you will. He doesn't have to think God's thoughts after him on a creaturely level, but he participates univocally in one being with God and by the laws of thought which obtain for the divine being and the man being, the creature being, he must think God's thought not after him, but in conjunction with God, in a corporation. Now, there is a firm over here near us, down here, the name is Dupont, and my name is Van Til. Now, they're French and I'm Dutch, but both mean Dupont from the bridge, and that's what my name means. And I've written them and asked them to have a common checkbook. And the rascals haven't had the courtesy to reply. Now, that's horrible, indecent of them, I think. But the point is that I was trying to get univocal with the DuPonts, checkbook-wise. <laughs> Don't you see? Then I could solve all the seminary physics. I would pay all your traveling expense both ways and everything else. But I can't do it. Well, now, the point is that man has tried to do that sort of thing with God's. Let's together, univocally, in one, according to one law of thought, according to one law of being, decide what is good. Let's discover that. Well, now, that's when the rebellion of man resulted in his being driven forth from the presence of God, and he now afterwards, after this, throughout the whole course of history, has to make his own way without God, and yet he can't because he's under the control of God. Like the prodigal of the New Testament story, he can leave the father's home all right, and he has money in his pocket, as I don't, but he has, and he sets him up, have another, it's on me, but he knows, and he doesn't say it, but he knows that the money has come from the old man. He can't forget the father's house. But he never tells anybody about it, that he has a father, or that he didn't earn, though he never, never earned a dime, he doesn't admit this. He assumes that the people whom he treats so well, as they think, till he gets to the swine trough, when he would have filled his belly with a husk that the swine did eat, and he couldn't because he wasn't a swine. Now, the point is that the history of philosophy 
exhibits the story of the prodigal son. Namely, what the prodigal son did was live independently by means of his own, trying to take these facts, which on his view, on that basis, are not created facts, but are chance-produced facts. He himself being chance-produced, and yet autonomous, therefore a law to himself, and then by laws of logic, which he assumes are somehow existent, either as Plato thought of them, as the Greeks thought of them, out there in the universe, or as Kant and modern sense that say they are within us, and by means of impressing these laws of logic upon the raw stuff of experience, the pure contingently existent factual mass, we make for ourselves orderly universe, a cosmos, just like a, a group of people that would be floating on an ice flow from the North Pole to the equator. They're made of ice themselves, and they're on an ice flow, and they're headed for the equator. Now, this is therefore the point. All non-Christian thinking has these three basic principles, human autonomy, and the assumption of pure contingency of the facts of the universe, of everything that happens, and the necessity of this self-existent, this autonomous man, by these so-called laws of logic, the law of contradiction, for instance, to, to bring together into unity these facts. It's a little bit as though you would undertake stringing an infinity of beads in a string, and you have to do it all because you haven't any God to do it. You've ousted him as the one who controls things and runs the show, but you have already, you have assumed that if there is to be any science, any philosophy, you have to do it as a man, not individually, but conjointly. Now, therefore, that is the result, I would say, for the fall, and we should see that that fall is an ethical something. That is, it's a question of hatred of God. We are told, are we not, by Paul, that the natural man is at enmity against God in Romans, and that as a consequence of this fall, he is spiritually dead. That's, a, that's Ephesians 2.1. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. That's the question of point of contact. Is it not because they are Holy Spirit discerned. Now, then we go on after that. Here is then the mass, as it's called, usually the mass of the man is totally depraved. That is, he is not as bad as he will be. He's not, and in many cases, is a very decent sort of man. We've heard just wonderful talks a whole hour last night. My wife and I listened on what they said about President Eisenhower, who just passed away, and I agreed with everything. I was an admirer of Eisenhower as a man, as a president, as a man of high dignity and integrity of personality. Now, that's not the question whether he was a saved Christian or not, but he was in himself. Now, we appreciate that, but that's due, in any case, with respect to many people who are not Christians, due to God's general saving, not non-saving, but common grace, without which the world would fall into chaos 
in the sense that you couldn't have any decency, any government, any science, even anything else. Now, here then, we have the revelation of God in the world of nature. We are told the goodness of God, the deity of God, but also the wrath of God is displayed, obviously, in nature. And then we're told that God, in his condescending grace, sent his only Son into the world, that whosoever believeth in him should be saved, not perish, but be saved. Well, now that means the incarnation. Now, what did the church say about the union of, about this incarnation? Well, in the Chalcedon Creed, the early church said, look, Christ is divine and he's human, but he is not intermingled. The divine doesn't turn into the opposite of itself, but it retains its own characteristics and then takes into permanent, constant union with itself this divine human nature and Jesus, the God-man, who is truly God, truly man, dies for sinners in their place in his human nature. It isn't God who dies. He is eternal. He couldn't die. But it is Jesus, the Son of God, in his human nature, who dies in our place. Well, all right. That's the church's story. I'm coming in a minute to the other side. Well, now then, after that, what did he do? Well, he died for his own, and that's what we speak of as substitutionary atonement in our place. The guilt that was upon us, the, the guilt that is within us, and the wrath of God that for our guilt rests upon us. He bore in our place. The wrath of God came down upon him, and we escaped. Namely, we are not subject providing we, of course, have humbled ourselves in true contrition of heart, are not subject now any longer to this wrath. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But then it adds, who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And that's why you have the work of the Son, in and then he rose again, we're told, for our justification so that though we are sinful still and weak, constantly, in spite of ourselves, fall into evil ways, we are nonetheless in Christ, as Paul speaks of it constantly, justified, so that though we sin and when we daily repent and come to the Father through that new and living way, which is Jesus Christ, we are forgiven each day anew and afresh on the basis of what Christ once did on the cross in rising from the dead, and then he ascended into glory and sits at the right hand of the Father and there makes intercession for his own, we're told. Now, then comes, of course, the fact of eschatology that he will return, uh, the application, I should say, first, reconciliation, which means, of course, the work of the Holy Spirit who takes the things of Christ and gives them unto us, who gives us a new heart he causes us to be born of God, born of the Spirit, so that we who are dead in trespasses and sin are now alive. 
And then he works within us to sanctify us when we use the means of grace, prayer, and the reading of Scripture constantly. We grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We draw nigh to him as he draws nigh to us, we're told. And then he will come again as we, with all the children of God, Wait for him expectantly as the apostles on the top of the mountain looked upward and were told, as ye look upwards, he hath seen him go upward. He will come again on the clouds of heaven to judge the quick and the dead, whether you're premillennialist or amillennialist or postmillennialist. Doesn't now, for me, matter just so you look for his coming again an actual historical reality. Now, that is Christianity. Now, you could say a lot more, I know, and we may disagree among ourselves on certain points and all of that, but that is, and I'm not advocating a common denominator Christianity. I'm a miserable Calvinist, and some of you may be good Armenians very well. But the big point is, and I would try to make Calvinists out of you, don't you see? So if any of you would be persuaded or have any inclination, we believe in the Reformed faith of Calvinists. But that doesn't mean we're going to make life hard for you. No. You can keep all the heresies you want. <laughs> and, you're, and you're still welcome to dinner, don't you see? And, and we mean that very seriously. We mean we, we gladly receive anybody of any convictions that he have, and he has a good time here, and he mixes with everybody. And the faculty won't scowl at him. The others won't, at least. I may, but the others won't. Now, now comes the question, taking this two-circle position, and here are these people who are one-circle people. That's the only difference, two-circle people and one-circle people. They don't say there's a divine being and a, and a created being. They just say there's being. And then afterwards, they say, now let's introduce a distinction in this being and say the lower part, which is near non-being, is created being. Now, Sat, whom I heard, about whom I heard again this morning, Usko at Nausiam, he writes a play on nausea. Well, when I hear about him, I experience it. Uh, very well. We're near non-being. Now, on the Roman Catholic basis, man is a creature who is fairly near to non-being, and so he's shaky, and uh, the winds of chance are pretty strong sometimes, and they move him around, and he trembles, and his being is almost non-being, and so he feels guilty, he has angst, he has everything of that sort. In other words, the Roman Catholic conception of things is that they can take this Christian position and tie it on to the Aristotelian philosophy, which is that of being, in which there is a difference between the top being, which is stiff and hard, divine being static, and the lower being, which is temporal and changing, near non-being. Now then, salvation becomes a metaphysical scale-lifting proposition. I was... Uh, I don't see any colored people here, but if there were, I would tell it anyway, because I don't mean it in any critical fashion. There was the old colored preacher who, in a 
typical church, fundamentalist church, didn't get much salary, so the congregation brought him pig's feet. He, they knew he was very fond of pig's feet. So he got pig's feet, but he finally got sick of pig's feet, and he announced on the pulpit, would they not please send him something a little higher up in the hog? Some hams, in other words. Well, now, don't you see? This is a question of being lifted in the scale of being higher up in the hog. God isn't a hog, but just the same, his being is higher. Now, that's the whole difference between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Protestantism is ethical in its relations. It says that God created man a being. When he fell, he was still a created being. He didn't fall lower in the scale of being. When he is saved, he's still a being created being, he doesn't get up higher in the scale of being. When he's glorified, he's still metaphysically on the same level. The change comes in that here he loves God, here he hates God, here he again loves God, and here he glorifies God fully. It's an ethical, not a metaphysical. Now that's Protestantism instead of Romanism. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't good Christian people in the Roman Catholic Church and all of that but it does mean that its theology is impregnated with this Aristotelian scale of being idea. And therefore, it is very easy to see that if you divide the points of view, here's the non-Christian position, then the Roman Catholic is over here somewhere. When you say to him, look, uh, aren't you awfully pagan in your thinking? Oh, he says, that's the lower part of my thinking, my natural theology. I have that in common with the Greeks because the Greeks taught us how to think straight. Aristotle did. And that's fine. But then I believe in the Trinity as you do, and I believe in the Incarnation. In other words, they built the first story on not by reason and add the second story by faith. But they can never integrate faith and reason. They are separate one from another. And that's why the reason is naturalistic and the faith is purely irrationalist. It's given on blank authority of what the church says, and you haven't any business to discover for yourself what the Bible says finally. Well, now, then, consequently, I don't think that we as Protestant Christians ought to cooperate with the Roman Catholics in trying to convert one circle people. <coughs> now, I know that that is a way that is advocated by good Protestant Christians, even some Reformed Christians. They say, well, now look here. We have in common with Rome the, our belief in God and our belief in Christ isn't the Chalcedon Creed, the creed of the whole church, Protestant, wasn't it? The Roman Catholic Church that formulated it. And we have all those doctrines in common. And then we can therefore show that theism is better than is, than is uh, pantheism or than is deism. Well, there's only one thing wrong with that. Deism means complete separation of God from the world, and pantheism means identification of God with the world, and you can't add 
separation and identification and make any sense at all. In other words, the, the significance of anything that anybody says is part of the whole picture that he gives you. If you talk about the incarnation, you talk about this kind of God that becomes incarnate. You're not talking about an abstract being of Aristotle's type that becomes incarnate. He can't become. Aristotle's God doesn't know the world, hasn't created the world, doesn't know himself. It's, he's not a he nor a she. He or she is an it. Well, now, the Roman Catholic Church has this task that it must combine and has tried to combine the God of Aristotle, of abstract principle, with the God of Christianity, the triune God, and that it has tried to attach the doctrine of incarnation and redemption as a second story onto it. Well, now, what we should therefore do, as it seems to me, is to take this total picture and say to people, say, here's somebody, we take all the varieties, there's 57 of them, of non-Christian theories. If I, we had time, I could ask you to enumerate some of them. There's, oh, today we have existentialism, we have Satz, point differences of existentialism, we have pragmatism, we have Bergson's creative evolution. We have a whole lot of them, but we have also had idealism, and we had Boston personalism, and we've had, well, dozens and dozens. There are 57 varieties of Heinz's products. There are also 57 varieties of non-Christian philosophies. You'll get lost in the whole works, absolutely lost, unless you have a principle by which you see what they have in common. This principle, the only principle, that from a Christian point of view shows what they have in common, is that the fact is negatively they do not believe in creation. They do not believe in God's providence. They do not believe in the possibility of redemption through what happened in history on the cross and the, through the resurrection of Christ. Now, then whatever else they do have, well, that is certainly not a matter of basic importance. I don't say it's of no importance, because formerly, at least, the idealists are much nicer. Oh, you say these bad materialists, aren't they bad? And the behaviorists, Watson, aren't they bad? Isn't Sot bad when he says he's a bit of ooze oozing out of ooze and oozing back into ooze? Isn't that bad? Oh, yeah, well, it is. Ah, but isn't idealism bad when it denies the creation doctrine just as much as these others do? Aren't the Pharisees as bad as the publicans in the eyes of Jesus? They were decent suburbanites, these Pharisees. Pharisees, were they not? They kept the law. I'm not like that publican over there. I keep the law. And the rich young ruler, he kept all the laws externally. And Jesus loved him for it. We should love people for the good things, relatively speaking, that they do, rather than that they're in the gutter. But sometimes people that are in the gutter are, you might say, a little easier to save than people that live and are well-dressed and live in big, nice suburban homes. If you go with a gospel truck and you say, whosoever will may be saved, repent, well, a drunk lying in the gutter at least senses that he needs some sort of chains. At least he gets, ought to get cleaned up. But somebody 
that's trying to sleep in of a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock and you come through through nice suburban areas such as that in which I live and then you come there blaring the gospel where the gospel drug is huh, you've got those miserable wretched fundamentalists again they think I'm going to hell don't they know there is no hell there's only Bart has told us there's only victory over hell I'm a good Bartian now don't you see I'm now pointing out that there is no difference and that therefore should be no difference in our methodology of approach to unbelievers of this kind and of that kind between modern unbelievers and ancient unbelievers. That doesn't mean that we don't psychologically live into their situation. We always give them a chance to say what they believe and what, what a wonderful wife they got and how nice the weather is and their family and all that. But when you've gotten through all of that, then you start trying to say to him, look, what do you really believe, basically? And then it turns out that if he thinks consistently, and if he doesn't, you've got to help him do so. You've got to make him realize what the implication of his position is. If he keeps going on it, he will land in eternal destruction. Now, he's a theologian, or he's a philosopher, or he's a scientist. But always, in every instance, he is an autonomous man. He doesn't want to bow himself to the Creator and to the Scriptures as the Word of Christ who came as the Redeemer of men. Now, then that means that when it comes to theology, you have higher criticism, you have every conceivable, the new reinterpretation of the whole of Scripture, the whole work of salvation is reinterpreted, it's given new meaning to fit in with modern philosophy. So you deal with the modern philosopher, we'll say he's an existentialist, and then you deal with a scientist. Well, then what do you say to this scientist? Well, you're a great explorer, or you're a great discoverer, you're Mr. Einstein, or you're Mr. Somebody, and you've discovered a lot of laws and truths about this universe, have you not? And of all, he has. So you agree with him that he has done that. But that's not the issue. You're not denying that. You're not denying that a man who is made in the image of God in a world that is created and has works according to the ordinances of God, that he can't discover truths. Of course he can. He does. He has. Many, much, every way. But the question is, in terms of what principles. If the world were a world such as he assumes it is, then he could not have done this. He has done it only because the world is not what he says it is, and it is what you say it is, not because you say it you haven't discovered, but because you've been told by God through Christ and you believe, and now you have this. And then you can say to him, look, my friend, you have borrowed, in effect, the creation doctrine and the providence doctrine, the regularity of the laws of nature. They wouldn't be regularity. If all the facts were unrelated, contingent, you couldn't even count. Now, that's, is there a separate law of mathematics, Christian mathematics? Yes, there is. Nobody has worked it out in full. There are some things written on it. But the whole point is that a philosophy, Christian philosophy of mathematics, is nothing other than a Christian philosophy applied to the fact of mathematical activity 
even arithmetic, counting. That is to say, and this philosophy, you couldn't count if there were no difference between any one fact and another fact. Now, if you're in a coal bin on a dark December night and you're blind and you're looking for a black cat that isn't there, then you're having some problems. Now, that's the problem of the unbeliever. Actually, he has blinded himself. He doesn't recognize that, but you know that. And the world is unrelated. The facts are not related. They're just there. Well, you ladies are good at stringing beads, I take it. Uh, but would you like to string a beads? An infinite string with an infinite number of beads and the string, you can't find either end of it. And the beads have no holes in them, so you can't even string two of them. <coughs> in other words, on the non-Christian philosophy <coughs> theory, the facts are just not integrated. They're not related. They're not relatable. They can't be related. They cannot intelligently be brought together. Now, therefore, you can also put it this way. Here's a man who will say, I always come back to the Queen Mary because I went on the Queen Mary one time. And here was somebody who didn't like the arrangements of the Queen Mary, so he jumped overboard. Well, was it better over there? The sharks got him, and it was kind of cold, and all of that sort of thing. In other words, the question is not, can you see through things? Nobody can. There's mystery between God, the self-contained, all-controlling God, and your sense of responsibility. But the alternative is that you take this God away, and then what do you have? Well, then you have possibility without integration, then there's no connection. And then you are like the man that is afloat on a raft on an infinite and extended, infinitely extended, and a bottomless, shoreless ocean. Now, Sat likes it that way. This man who was lecturing in Sat this morning admitted that Sat couldn't give any reasons for his faith at all. Instead of thinking that non-Christian people have at least the field of science and that that's a well-integrated and self-intelligent something and that we better get with it and interpret our Christianity so it is in accord with this principle of science is, of course, purely imaginary. Well, therefore, this man of water, this isn't the man that's jumped overboard. He has, to begin with, sprung from chance. He's not a made in the image of God. Therefore, he is a bit of water. And then his environment is water. Only he's a white cap. Somehow the water got stirred up and produces white caps, and he's one of these white caps. When the ocean stills again, then he disappears in the blue and is one with his environment. Now he's got to make a ladder of water because there is nothing else than maybe a few drift pieces of driftwood. But finally, they are made of water. In any case, what do you set a ladder on if you have a ladder of water? And what do you set it against if it's water against which you have to set it? A man of water set, making a ladder of water, trying to get out of the water. He can't get on the first rung of the ladder of water because he isn't anybody that knows himself 
he can't distinguish himself, speck of water, from other water. Now, that is the alternative. Now, Christians should present the, their convictions. First of all, they receive what you have received. You have received by faith on the authority of Christ. We can't pretend that we start with a philosophy which we have built up, a theism, like the Roman Catholics do, and that then we can show that our position is more logical and more in accordance with facts. If we do that, we're sunk already, because then we have in principle admitted that they are right in their philosophy of fact and in their philosophy of logic. We should rather say to him, look, you don't like this, do you? Very well. Will you tell me of another position which you do like and which does intelligibly interpret human experience, which can account for yourself as a person, which can account for the facts of the world and how they get together in relationship to you as a person? And invariably, he cannot do it. And therefore, the whole history of philosophy down to the most recent times is there to exhibit this fact. And Paul said, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that it pleased God through the foolishness, wisdom of this world. Man knows not God. It pleased him through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. All right? Then you're doing justice to the fact that it takes the grace of God to save people. But there is a point of contact in the fact that they are image bearers of God and that they have the responsibility and know in themselves that they are not what they say they are, but that they are sinners in the sense that they know that they are wicked and they have broken the ordinances of God and that if they do not accept this very well, they can't offer you any alternative. <clears throat> when the war was, the last world war was about to close, Hitler had just about gotten himself ready to attack England and to shoot across the channel. But one problem he had of the placement of his guns. On what do you place guns if you have nothing but water? on which to place guns. You don't like the Queen Mary. So you get out, and then you say, I'm going to shoot the Queen Mary. It's just a little difficulty, because you've got to have a pretty good-sized gun to shoot the Queen Mary to pieces. So you've got to have a pretty heavy, solid ground. But there is no ground on which to place your guns. I saw on a train one time from Detroit to Grand Rapids, Michigan, a little girl sitting on her daddy's lap she slapped him like that in the face. Only little girls would do that sort of thing, not boys. Well, now, <clears throat> why did she do it? Or how, that doesn't matter now. But how could she do it? Because her daddy held her on his lap. Suppose he dropped her inside or outside the train. Would she have done any slapping? No. She could have slapped in the vacuum. Well... Very well. The possibility of human predication presupposes the truth of the Christian religion. Nobody can say anything intelligible about anything in any field, either negatively or positively, unless the Christian position is true. 
Now, don't you see, that accords with our faith. You don't think that Christ possibly, probably rose from the dead. You know he rose from the dead. If I offered you a first-class trip to the Holy Land to see whether the body of Jesus might be there, petrified, as bodies do, petrified, how many of you would go? Please raise your hand a few, otherwise my illustration won't work. Huh? No. You're too good a Calvinist, aren't you? All of you. For that, or too good a Christians. You know that Christ rose from the dead and that he ascended to heaven, didn't he? And you're not going to go actually on a neutral basis with a possibility, you think, that his body might be on earth. It can't be there. It can't be true. You remember the story of Elisha when the boys wanted three days off from school, as students like to get days off, because inherently they're pretty lazy. The only ones that are worse are the faculty. Now, therefore, they, when Elisha said Elijah had gone to heaven, they said, ah, oh, that can't be so. Supernatural, fiery chariot going to heaven. Oh, he must have dropped off somewhere over there. And so let, there's a cluster of leaves there. Let's go out. So Elisha reluctantly gave him three days off. They came back and then, of course, as the Germans would say, met them Schwanzwissen die Bein, as a dog with a tail between its legs. Shamed of himself, they come back to Elijah, the president of the seminary, and uh, then, did you find him, boys? No answer. I told you so, he says. I told you so. Well, don't you see, that should be our attitude. There is no answer except the Christian. No, I must stop because this big fellow... Bob Dendelk is back there threatening me. Five minutes. Now are there still some questions? I have indirectly, I hope, more or less at least, I can't, you know, I wanted to get the total picture. Now I haven't succeeded in doing it clearly, maybe. And I'll be very glad to talk to any of you further individually if there is still a chance. Now will you ask any question that can be discussed in, yes. He always refers to man's ignorance. Not to, yes, but ignorance is also culpable ignorance. See, the natural man likes chance because he hates God. Sat would much rather wallow in the mire of chance because then he disappears. And if you disappear, you don't get into judgment. You know, the Bible says that in the last days, men will call upon the mountains to cover them. So they do not see the wrath of the land. Well, so there's nothing neutral in the field of science. It isn't just ignorance. It is ignorance, but it's culpable ignorance. I'm not sure, not exactly what I meant. What I meant is that the non-Christian says that chance is something. Yes. It's, it's, that's it's, right. And we say chance is nothing. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to get. That's right. But I was only adding to that that he likes that. Yes. What about the validity? Oh, well, I would say the Christian can investigate, and he has a hypothesis about this and about that. But underneath his hypothesis is the a conviction that it is not probable to God. He knows what it is. You come to my house, you can come in into the room, and then you can have hypotheses what's in that closet or that closet. All of you are invited to dinner at my house. All right? 
And then you can have hypotheses what's in this room or what's in that room before you have... But I know. Don't you see? Now, God knows because he has arranged. Now, within that, the hypothesis idea and the probability has meaning. But here, look, if you go to a show, pet show, and you see a puppy, and he takes two steps in this direction, are you going to say very probably he's going to land over there? Then you don't know puppydom. Because it's likely to go this way. Now... And that's only a weak illustration. If you take any fact that is in an infinite universe of chance, even if there's any momentary, if a bit of flotsam or jetsam on an ocean goes this way, are you going to predict it's going to land up so de Gaulle can get a hold of it instead of Nixon over here? No, you can't predict anything. Now, Hume, the great skeptic, has pointed out there is no such thing as a law of chances on that basis. That's a contradiction in terms, isn't so? There are no laws. The idea of chance is the exclusion. And that's what we should point out. The alternative to Christianity is pure chance with meaninglessness. Who had his little patty up here? I was essentially asking the same thing. Uh, could a Christian uh, apply it as chance to, say, uh, quantum mechanics? He can call it chance, but he knows it isn't chance. I mean, he would, he could say, well, insurance companies do that all the time, isn't so? Uh, statistical averages and statistical laws and all of that. You can make use of all of those things because, you see, for you, they are within the providence of God. You don't say that they are statistical laws for God. They are for you as a creature because you're finite and limited. So you can cooperate with all kinds of people who are not Christians, who do not agree with you in this basic philosophy, but who can still operate those laws in spite of their system. Who has another? Well, you see, that's a good question to put because the question shows that what you're thinking of proving faith is, I wouldn't call that proving faith. I don't call trying to, I wouldn't try proving the faith by a false method of proof. Now, I'm not going to try to prove there is a sun by getting a lantern, an oil pit, and looking for the sun and asking, wonder whether there is a sun. I'm saying the sun is there and all lights like this are derivative and that's why they have meaning. And therefore I would say it's, I'm giving you the best proof there is because I'm showing you that the word proof means nothing except on the presupposition of the truth of Christianity. Um, biblical, and we can say this in um, the way Congress, but are we necessarily judging other people and prices not to judge no, we're doing what Christ tells us to do, to proclaim the truth and set it over against error. Christ doesn't say that we mustn't condemn systems that have their origin in the devil, which they have if they don't base themselves. Christ never says anything of the sort. He says, he that is not for me is against me. And the best way to get people converted, humanly speaking, 
takes the Holy Spirit, of course, to convert them, is to show them the difference between this system. Suppose you said, I mustn't judge anybody. Well, then you couldn't even judge the worst of pagan philosophies and say, you couldn't even say, my dear friend, you ought to be converted because what you're living by and going to die by will bring you right to perdition. Now, don't you see? It means you are judging and you have to judge. The Bible doesn't tell you that, that you mustn't judge that to be wrong. You couldn't suppose that a medical doctor came to a patient. I mustn't judge what's wrong with you. I mean, that's as simple as it is. You have to judge because you are speaking for the great physician to people who need that great physician, and you need that great physician to tell them what they need. Yes, who else? To what extent does our own depravity limit our ability to, uh, to interpret the, the, oh, well. the basis of the Bible? You see, I'm a bad Calvinist. I'm very depraved. And you're a good Arminian, don't you see? All right. The point is that we still, however much we bewail the fact that we daily do not come up to what we are in principle in Christ and come far short of it and repent. But just the same, we both bow before Jesus Christ and his word. Now then, I admit that my interpretation, so far as details is concerned, may be wrong at this point, and yours may be right, vice versa. But, you see, there is a, we ought to attempt at least to say that creation is a doctrine so clear that every Christian can see it, and that redemption through the blood of Christ is so clear. Now, I don't say that even there we all as Christians agree. It's a limitation. But it should not, that fact of that limitation, should not make us give up the fight for the faith no more than soldiers in our army because they have just been arguing together and they've been maybe having a boxing match and fighting and getting awfully mad at each other. Nevertheless, they don't shoot each other. They only try to shoot the North Vietnamese. Isn't so? Now, that doesn't mean that I'm trying to shoot these people. I'm shooting them in order that they may live. In other words, we ought to be deeply concerned with the utmost desire that they may be saved. But for that very reason, as a doctor says what's wrong with him, and then he can describe the right medicine. Well, I thank you very kindly. Our time is up.